Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, (laughs) I could really use Current. (laughs) I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. A sign of power stewarded rightly is that other people are empowered themselves. If you don't feel empowered, (laughs) I would say that's probably a red flag. You know, if you don't feel like you can speak the truth, if you don't feel like you belong because you don't fit a certain kind of ministry model, you haven't been selected to be at the top of the pyramid. If you feel like you're, you're actually expending a lot on behalf of the church, but there's no sense of gratitude or I feel, I feel diminished in my personhood because of how much I'm giving to the church. I would think all of those would be red flags. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. 
Welcome back to the Preacher Boys Podcast. Today's episode is with the author of Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. Her name is Caitlin Beatty. She's an award-winning journalist, and she really identifies some of the biggest issues within American church culture. We talk a lot about the difference between fame and celebrity, big red flags that have been missed in some of the biggest scandals that have taken place and rocked evangelicalism. And we talk about what she thinks is going to happen within the church over the next couple years and so much more. This is an amazing conversation. You're not going to want to miss one second. Here's my conversation with Caitlin Beatty. Before we get started in a conversation about celebrity culture within the church, um, first, I just want to go back to what prompted you to start this project and start writing this book, Um, because the idea of American evangelicalism has been around for a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. People are having conversations about how much power is too much power. Uh, where did you enter into this? And and how did you get to a point where you said, there's a book here, we should talk about this? I started my career at Christianity Today magazine. It considers itself the flagship evangelical magazine, got there right out of college and was there for almost 10 years. And in that time, our staff received several tips or allegations against pretty well-known people. You know, we heard the Bill Hybel story at least two years before it was actually reported on because people weren't weren't ready or able to speak on record at that time. We received a tip about Ravi Zacharias, um, you know, a couple of years before it was actually reported on. So just hearing these stories, having a certain impression of those leaders, and then hearing these allegations was such a um, psychological, (laughs) uh, it was just so confusing and uh, started to wonder how celebrity had shielded people like Hybels and Zacharias, you know, these were household names. People considered them really important men of God doing the Lord's work, but did that actually operate to shield them from accountability and from having people ask really important questions? Um, and we've seen so many similar stories come out in the last several years that I really wanted to figure out why celebrity plays such a dynamic role in the church in America. And, and it seems like the church has not been able to resist the ascendancy of celebrity that we see in so many other factors and in sectors. And in some ways it just, you know, adds fuel to the fire. If you sure. think of someone as um, uniquely called by God or divinely called in a way that others aren't, that can easily fuse with celebrity dynamics and make someone, you know, above the rules or above the law. Right. Well, I don't want to put you in the hot seat too, too early in the interview, but uh, I know you mentioned the book, obviously working with Christianity Today and, um, you know, getting some of these tips early on that were coming into the magazine, not always you directly, but just into Mm -hmm. the magazine. Um, You know, when the, when the Driscoll podcast dropped, you know, there were people who were kind of mad at Christianity Today because they said, you know, like you kind of helped fuel this celebrity fire or, you know, with Ravi Zacharias, with Hybels, all the names you mentioned. can you tell me a little bit about what the environment was at Crochet today when those tips would come in and mm. why it would be two years before they reported on? I, I know you mentioned mm. a little bit in your book uh, pretty early on, but for those listening uh, who maybe have that resistance were like, oh, wait, hold on, Crochet today, you know, what was the response and what was mm-hmm. the the kind of reason they were reacted to the way they were? Yeah, well, in the case of Hybels and Zacharias, 
it wasn't so much, oh, we want to protect these men because they have good theology or they have these Mm -hmm. important ministries. It was really a matter, as far as I can recall, of we really need people to speak to us on record and be able to substantiate these claims. If we're going to report on them, we need corroboration. We need documents. And people inside the institutions were just so reticent or afraid Mm -hmm. to speak out. You know, they were... They realized that their job was on the line. Understandably so. Yeah. Yeah. So with Driscoll, it's an interesting (laughs) um, dynamic because, you know, CT reported on the result source scandal involving the church purchasing its way, you know, church funds being used to purchase the book's way onto the New York Times bestseller Mm -hmm. list. When I joined the staff in 2007, Mark Driscoll was really starting to come onto the national mm-hmm. scene. I had maybe heard his name or like seen a couple books by him. I was not was not a fan even of that time because of things that he was saying about women. Sure. <laughs> but I remember the magazine running a pretty glowing profile of him in 2007 called Pastor Provocateur. Hmm. That it was all about, you know, yeah, he's brash or he's punchy. He's punch, he uses punchy language, but at least he's, you know, reaching people with the gospel in this very liberal place. Looking back, I do think that organizations like Christianity Today, the Gospel Coalition, Desiring God, kind of these parachurch organizations serve to sometimes bolster the image and credibility of someone, even in the midst of scandal. Mm-hmm. like. They're national figures. We actually don't like there was no way that CT would know what Mark Driscoll was actually like day to day or right. like the way that he was leading his church. But, oh, my gosh, he's this prominent figure that's coming onto the scene. He's a colorful figure. So let's write this profile about him. And I definitely resonate with the critiques that the podcast came like too little, too late, Mm -hmm. even though I thought it was well done. I do also think that CT probably needed to own some responsibility a little bit sooner and how they might've given this man uh, moral cover or credibility. There is this element too, where like celebrity and influence, which I want to define in a second, but celebrity and influence is such a part of American culture that when you start looking at people like Driscoll, we start looking at what success is. It's easy to default to measuring successes. Like how many listeners do they have? How many people are mm-hmm. coming into, um, you know, into these environments and it puts, mm-hmm. you know, I work in marketing, so that's my, you know, mm-hmm. my quote unquote nine to five. And like, I sometimes, you know, go like, okay, the church clutches its pearls too much about, you know, marketing or about branding or about, you know, trying to get the word out in a creative way. Um, mm-hmm. but on the flip side of that, like there's just inherently dangerous things that come when you take one person and make them the face of the brand, the brand mm-hmm. being Christianity. Um, so, you know, institutions like Christianity today, like Driscoll was good for the brand of Christianity in the sense of mm. he brought attention. Um, but you know, once that turns and it's bad attention, it's no longer a good thing. Um, I want to I want to mm-hmm. define before we go any further because some people might be listening and going like, okay, what's a celebrity? So anybody that's famous is bad. <laughs> anybody that right. you know, um, like you just interviewed Beth Moore, who's arguably a Christian celebrity uh, in yeah. some ways. Well, how mm-hmm. do you define? And you do a really good job in your book. How do you define the difference between having fame and being, mm-hmm. you know, having celebrity? 
Yeah. Well, I kind of think of fame as a neutral state, you know, somebody can become famous because of good things they're doing in the world because of their creativity, their virtue, their accomplishments in ancient times, it would have been like military prowess or family lineage. Um, and if you acquire a certain kind of renown, you know, you do these things, word spreads about who you are and what you're doing and you find yourself with fame, then it's kind of up to you to determine and discern, well, how do I use this in a good way? How do I not use this in a corrupting or corrosive way? Celebrity, I think of as a uniquely modern phenomenon and that it really inherently relies on the tools of mass media to project an image, a brand, a personal brand, so to speak, a kind of um, image of oneself that is more focused on drawing um, a, adoration or attention or a kind of affinity. So I would say it's less about kind of the work you're doing in the world and more about you as an impressive person. And those dynamics can create intense loyalty and fascination. Of course, we see that in every sector where there's big celebrities, like people reading about Hollywood news or, you know, professional athletes, but um, there's a kind of fascination too, that comes with Christians with celebrity, I think in part, because if you think that Christianity is under siege or Christians are being persecuted, it's impressive, or it feels like a form of cultural power to have Christians with that much social power. Right. Um, I think celebrity. So yes, I would say Beth Moore is a celebrity. Um, and famous, <laughs> you know, like, I think that she has done good things in her ministry that drew acclaim. Of course, the book publishing industry plays a big role in helping to create celebrities in the church. And she also does you know, kind of a project an image of herself or a persona. Now I happen to like her persona. <laughs> um, I think where celebrity can become dangerous is that it oftentimes has a distancing effect. Mm -hmm. So someone on the stage or on the screen projects a kind of image or message that you attach to, but it can actually be really hard to get to know people with that much social power and oftentimes they don't want people to get to know them in any real or vulnerable way because they're trying to protect their brand or they think if you really knew what I was like <laughs> off the stage, off the screen as a normal, unimpressive person, I would feel, you know, my ego would take a hit and I would feel like I don't matter or I'm not loved or I'm not worthy. So celebrity is feeding deep needs for the celebrity figure, deep needs of, you know, care and attention. And unfortunately, celebrity crowds out the very thing that many celebrities are actually looking for, which is a sense of love and acceptance. Yeah. It, it makes sense to me. And I love that we define this because this is something I thought you did well in the beginning of your book is like separating those two, because, you know, mm -hmm. it's easy to go, you know, and I don't know if you're like me, like I always have arguments in my head, like pushing back on points back and forth where I go, mm -hmm. you know, oh, celebrity's really bad. And then you're like, well, Jesus had, you know, thousands of people that would crowd to go hear him, you know, at times. Mm -hmm. And um, and then you start going, would Paul have a podcast? You know, like you start going like, what is, <laughs> what is good stewardship of the resources available to get your message out versus mm -hmm. what is dangerous territory? And we see it most evident when something truly criminal happens. You know, we see that that's negative. But like you said, then we see people who 
okay, well, they're leveraging in a good way. So it's good that they mm-hmm. have that platform. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to celebrity, it sounds like it's not so much the size of the audience, so much as the goal of the person who is speaking or in a position of authority. Is, does that sound accurate? Because I, I see mm. some of these things happen in churches of 150 people, as well as in churches of 5,000, right. 6,000, you know, satellite churches all over the country kind of thing. Right, right. So- Yeah, I think it's simplistic to try to assess the health of a celebrity by the size of their platform. You know, we were just talking about Beth Moore. She has millions of followers and book buyers and all of that. From what I can tell, she's she is stewarding that well. Um, And as you just said, celebrity dynamics and abuses of power can happen in small churches and small contexts. So it's simplistic to think big church, bad, small church, good, (laughs) you know, person with big platform bad. you know, I just, I don't think that that is particularly helpful. I will say though, I do think that size can accelerate some Mm. of these dynamics often without the person realizing that that's what's happening. If you have like overnight success or your star grows astronomically and you, you all of a sudden you have tons of people wanting to listen to you and pay attention to you and read your book, listen to your podcast. Um, Sometimes that can happen without the attendant grounding and maturity to really handle it well. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to talk about Beth Morgan. One thing that she said in her podcast conversation with me and my, my friend Roxy a few weeks ago was big is not always bad, but big is always fraught. Mm -hmm. And so I do think the American church as a whole has probably overemphasized numerical growth and size bigger is better over and against attendant spiritual depth and grounding. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if we are in a corrective phase and I, I want my book celebrities for Jesus to be contributing to that correction Mm -hmm. to say, big isn't always bad, but big is also not always the goal. And like, yeah. if it, if something grows and it happens kind of organically, okay, figure out how to steward it. But if you're seeking, if you're kind of grasping for growth in whatever means possible, this is precisely what keeps really abusive pastors who happen to be great preachers and speakers in positions of power because people in the church think, well, they are so central to our church's growth and we don't want to lose people. You know, we don't want to stop growing. Look at all the things that have happened um, under this person's leadership. So yeah, they have some serious issues with X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. but we can't remove them. And then yeah. there's a, there could be a spiritual overlay too of growth means God's blessing. So we don't mm-hmm. want to, we don't want to hinder God's blessing. And I want to say, that's just naive. <laughs> You know, not everything yeah. that is growing is growing because of good things, you know? Right. Do, do you think the emphasis on numerical growth comes from the fact that it's just easier to measure mm-hmm. than actual mental or spiritual health? <laughs> uh, yes. And I say this as someone who needs to like go read my book to <laughs> kind of preach to myself. Yeah. Because well, it had to be a weird book to write because you're like, I hope it becomes a bestseller, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like. Yeah. So um, 
yeah, of course we want, we want signs. We want something tangible to know that, that we're on the right track, that what we are doing matters. We want relevant significance. I mean, I grew up in a church culture that told me from a very young age, you want to make an impact for Christ, Mm -hmm. like the impact you want to um, do something big for God in the world. And so there was less conversation about kind of the kind of person you are becoming, becoming a person of virtue, of wisdom, of care for your flesh and blood neighbor, and more go out into the world and do big things for God. And I think that is central to, this is like grossly (laughs) generalizing, but I think that instinct is pretty central to the American evangelical Mm -hmm. psyche that we are supposed to be world changers and doers and on fire. And if we feel like that's what we're supposed to do, well, of course, we're going to look for signs that we're on the right track. And one of the easy ways to easy places to look is at, is at numbers and growth. And then kind of, again, thinking, well, God, God wanted me to do big things. And I showed up and I was faithful. So he's obviously growing this thing. Right. Um, and just thinking of growth as a sign of God's blessing. And I just think it's way more complicated than that. Do you think there's also some level of that? Cause I, I, you know, reading uh, Kristen DeMay's book, you know, reading through your book and, and thinking through history of how, you know, like the way that Christianity and I'm using Christianity as a broad label, like the way you would see in a, a poll, you know, people who would identify as Christian, you look at the ripple effects that start back with like, say, Billy Graham. You look at those mm-hmm. periods where it's like, let's buy up radio stations. Let's buy up, you know what I mean? Like, let's mm-hmm. let's market this thing really mm-hmm. well. And they did market it really well. I mean, TV networks, um, radio stations, magazines, newspapers. Um, do you think some of that comes from a lack of confidence in the message as well? Where it's like, mm-hmm. we're going to rely on this tactic versus this idea of like, we have a compelling message. It's person to person. Yeah. Well, speaking of Graham and kind of other evangelists who were early adopters of radio and television, I I, I put Graham in a different category from like the Bakers. <laughs> um, right. I think he was just very pragmatic about numbers. Like here's a tool at our disposal that you know, Paul, the apostle didn't have that even Jesus didn't have. You know, Graham bragged that he could reach many more millions (laughs) with the gospel than Jesus did in his lifetime. I think there was a sense that we have these tools. This, this is where people are listening to messages. So we, Mm -hmm. this is where people are spending their time consuming content. So we need to be in those spaces where people are. And if these tools allow us to reach that many more people, with a gospel message, well, let's totally capitalize on it. So there's something very entrepreneurial and even progressive in that approach. Yeah, I I do think that it's possible that for some of these evangelists and kind of early adopters, there was a sense that we want to show the world that not only, you know, our gospel is sound and attractive, but also that we have a measure of cultural power as well, and that Christians can be kind of in the mix <laughs> culturally. Um, we're not like our fundamentalist cousins who are retreating from the world. We are, we're educated, right. we're savvy, we're attractive. You know, I'm thinking about Christians 
I've heard this is true. I haven't spent a ton of time digging into this because I am a millennial and TikTok scares me. But I have heard that there are a lot of Gen Z Christians who are using TikTok mm-hmm. to share the gospel, to, to share evangelistic messages. I think some of that is the impulse to be in the mix culturally and to say, you know, just because we have specific beliefs that would be very strange to a lot of our neighbors, um, we, we can keep up <laughs> with yeah. the trends of the day. We can be where the young people are. Um, it's really that of- Mars Hill approach, not Mars Hill, the church, but Mars Hill in the story, <laughs> it's, it's, it's going to the marketplace of ideas and, and mm-hmm. not, not taking the fundamentalist approach, which I grew up with very strongly, mm-hmm. which is you separate, you don't engage, but right. it's going in and saying, we're going to take dominion over this. You know, we're mm-hmm. going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to run into this world and we're going to talk about what we talk about um, in the mm-hmm. same way and at the same volume and with other people. Yeah. There's a spirit of engagement for right. a lot of evangelicals. Like how can you really <clears throat> love your neighbors if you're not interacting with them, whether that's on the internet or in person, but the internet will at least allow you to engage many more people than you could in person. You mentioned obviously the bakers, um, and I hope I'm not jumping around too much, but there's a lot of different threads on this. Um, but you mentioned like the bakers, the Billy Grahams, like, you know, we could go down a long list of Christian celebrity names that everyone already has going through their mind right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you think that most are going in with good intentions into these situations? Because you this this is a question that I, you know, I've covered so many abusive leaders mm-hmm. on this show. Mm-hmm. And the question that always is in my mind is, did they build their way up to this so they could do this? Or did mm-hmm. they get on us? Did they take on too much where they couldn't handle it? Because I think we all like to think, oh, if we had, you know, millions of dollars coming in and the platform that that we would never, ever, like we would always be above board. We'd never slip into anything negatively or we'd never, mm-hmm. you know, abuse financial power, or physical power, you know, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um you know, do you think that this is usually a case of growing too fast and getting thrown off course? Or do you think a lot of people are seeing Christianity as an easy mechanism to say, okay, I can mm-hmm. function in that world, build a platform and abuse it? Super that's easy really, question, right? That's a really good question. <laughs> and I think about this literally all the time. I guess no one and can truly know but them in some on some level. Yeah. So I would say... um. With some of these stories, I think there were very early indications, even before the big growth, that there were very unhealthy patterns of utilizing other people, of seeing other people as instruments to get your thing done, um, of being mean, <laughs> of like just of being a jerk, of um, trying to get away with things that other people couldn't. And I absolutely think anybody going into seminary or going into pastoral ministry needs to be willing to undergo psychological evaluation. Um, because I think those malignant narcissism traits were probably there from the very beginning Mm -hmm. and people were reticent to really look at them or doing doing, do anything about it. Um, because the person was also incredibly charismatic and, was going to lead the church into the future. Which narcissists often are. (laughs) Right. I mean, we are 
narcissists can be very charming people, you mm-hmm. know, um, they can kind of woo and wow and make you feel really good if you're, if you attach to them and get your own ego stroked by your attachment to them. So in other cases, it's really hard for me to say, um, there are, there are some of these cases where I read the details and I think this person was just foolish and foolish over a period of time and kept making foolish decisions. I put foolishness in a different category than predatory, you know? Yeah. Um, I will say though, <laughs> that you know, part of what I'm trying to highlight in this book is that it's not enough to kind of point to individuals and think if we can just root out the toxic leaders or the bad ones or whatever, the people who can't handle the power, then we'd all be fine because it took in any of these cases, it takes dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of other people around them that enable them to keep acting the way that they do that allow them to get away with financial impropriety or deception or, being a jerk in staff meetings, like the, the level of enabling that happens in all of these stories means that any of us who are around a dynamic leader like that have a role to play in keeping them grounded in, and, you know, in, if need be like in pulling the plug and being Mm -hmm. willing to let someone go, even if the church is growing. And even if you can try to point to all these signs of tangible success. I'm going to get you back into today's episode in just a moment, but first I want to thank the sponsor that is making today's episode possible, and that sponsor is Factor. Factor creates no prep, no mess meals. You can meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, no matter how many podcasts you're recording, going up and down the stairs, trying to take meetings, whatever you're doing, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. And I can say this from experience. They were kind enough to send me a couple of meals for this week, and I enjoyed one just shortly before reading this ad, and it is amazing. And with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert and stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. And these aren't meals that skimp on quality either. You've got things like filet mignon, shrimp, blackened salmon, and so much more. So if you want to try it, go head over to factormeals.com slash preacherboys50 and use code preacherboys 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PreacherBoys50 at factormeals.com slash PreacherBoys50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Go check out Factor and now check out the rest of this episode. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. 
Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Uh, there's a there's a quote from um, Tiffany Bloom's book, Pray Tell, where she says, uh, you can't see red flags through rose-colored glasses. And I mm. think about this a lot because many times we look back and go, man, there was stuff in the beginning with Driscoll that was obvious. There was things in the beginning with, you know, mm-hmm. fill in the blank, whoever you, with Ravi Zacharias, there were things that were, right. you know, little lies, you know, and that turned into bigger lies and bigger lies that, you know, alone should have been like, okay, let's talk about this. Um, but we see the good and we, I think, I don't think that's a trait that's negative. I think we see the best in people. We try to be optimistic. Um, for the most part, when we see somebody, we try to believe the best in people. Um, mm-hmm. how do we go about as, you know, I, I want to say the the audience or the congregations or the followers, so to speak, how do we go about creating safeguards without just being cynical or assuming the mm-hmm. worst of leadership? Because again, when you see somebody in the beginning and their church is growing, you know, numerically, mm-hmm. or they're helping people, they've got people who say my lives have been changed, you know, that sort of thing. Um, we don't want to just go in and go like, what are they really up to? Like, how do mm-hmm. we go about building those kind of safeguards and preventing this stuff early on, as opposed mm-hmm. to, oh, wish we'd known that about, you know, this person, you know, before they passed away or before their ministry shut down or whatever that is. Right. So (laughs) I can't come onto this podcast and say anybody should be cynical. Like I am. I do tend if, if there are, you know, if there's a spectrum of positivity and cynicism, I am definitely tilting toward the cynical side. I do not think cynicism is a virtue or fruit of the spirit. I wonder if a positive reframe of a cynical instinct is something like discernment or wisdom, which is that we have to equip people who are within these ministries to trust their instincts, to kind of pay attention to what their um, it can oftentimes it's intuition. It's like something about that exchange made me feel really icky. I can't put my finger on it, but there's something not right. Something isn't right in this system, in the way that our leader talks or behaves or the way that we've attached to him or her. Um, So I would say, you know, fostering a posture of discernment and making sure kind of in your heart and imagination that people aren't being treated as godlike or spiritually superior in the sense that, I mean, I, I believe that specific people are called to positions of leadership, but we all have access to the Holy Spirit and God doesn't need any specific person in a position of leadership to accomplish God's mission in the world. And as soon as we maybe internally start sensing, you know, can we imagine our church or ministry without this person at the helm? And if we can't, that's something Big to... Problem. Look at that's that there's some there's some kind of enmeshment with our church's identity and the pastor's identity that is Mm -hmm. unhealthy. Yeah, I also you know I talk in the book about accountability and of course we we all say like yes of course leaders need to be held accountable and leaders will say yes I want to be held accountable blah blah blah, (laughs) Um, but it really has to go beyond lip service to the concept of accountability to looking at the actual interpersonal 
and mm-hmm. power dynamics at play when we think about elder boards or board of directors, denominational bodies. Are people able to say the hard thing mm-hmm. to the leader without fear of retribution, without fear of losing their job or being fired and then being asked to sign an NDA if they want their yeah. compensation? Is there a free flow? of speaking the truth and love Mm -hmm. in those accountability networks. Um, And if not, what is that about? (laughs) Like, and I, I, I think that, you know, Ravi Zacharias, he said for years, like, Oh, I'm, I'm accountable to this board and this, you know, I have a board of advisors. I have supervisors, blah, blah, blah. But when you scratch just a little bit below the surface, you saw that nobody felt like they could really stand up to him yeah. because, oh my gosh, our ministry bears his name. He's the what, brand. Yeah. He's the brand. So you know, other staff were asked to limit their travel to a hundred days a year. Like you need to be in the office or your academic institution or with your family two thirds of the year. Ravi was allowed to travel he was often traveling 300 days a year, but no one, what what were people going to say or do? Because we need Ravi out on the road, you know, speaking to groups and fundraising for us to continue to exist. So Mm. um, yeah, just getting, I think just getting honest about what accountability is and whether it's possible or whether it's kind of in name only and it's given lip service because pastors and leaders know they're supposed to be accountable, but they don't actually welcome it. Right. Well, I've seen this time and time again, and I don't like talking about this because it always comes out a weird way, but I feel like I've always been able to see things kind of early on. Like I'm not Mm -hmm. good at many things. I'm not perceptive, perceptive about a lot of things, but there's been a lot of times I've had that gut feeling where something's not right. Mm-hmm. I've gone to somebody, they go like, oh, it's not a big deal. You're being cynical or you're overreacting. And then like a few months later or a few years later, that thing that I felt weird about comes to fruition and something mm-hmm. really bad happened. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said, in a lot of churches, there's accountability, but it's deacons that serve the pastor or it's a mm-hmm. pastor's board that is literally a boys club of other pastors that are doing the same thing. Um, right. I, I guess it raises the question for me because growing up in the independent fundamental Baptist world, I always, you know, when everything went wrong there and I saw how that structure didn't work because there was no accountability because due to the independent side of things, I would look mm-hmm. at the SBC. And when I started going to the SBC world, I was like, well, there's accountability. There's an actual organization mm-hmm. here. We've seen clearly that organization kind of worked to enable a lot of abuse. Right. So. I guess my question is, one, how do you identify a place where um, you can speak into, like, how do you how do you know if you can really honestly speak into a church mm-hmm. and evoke change? And then the second part would just be, how long should you stay within a church or organization trying to change it from the inside before mm-hmm. you go, okay, I clearly have no voice here. I should let them, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I did my part. I need to step away from it because I don't want to be part of the the casualties from this. Right. Yeah. Well, in terms of speaking into systems and kind of knowing when and how to speak up to push for accountability, truth-telling reform, um, 
if there is openness to hearing hard questions, if there is openness to trying to find the truth, you know, if there is actual, maybe it's not the central figure, but maybe there are actually good people around the central figure who, who are still, who derive a sense of mission, not from their attachment to that person and protecting that person's brand or ego, but from a sense of, we want to be a healthy church that reflects the person of Christ that is creating disciples that values truth. If there is enough of a culture of truth seeking, um, I would say press into that and at least see how far you can go, whether that, you know, I know Matthew 18 (laughs) comes up a lot in these conversations um, where people on the inside often say, well, you shouldn't speak publicly about this because Mm. that's gossip or slander damages our reputation. You need to follow Matthew 18. I don't think there's anything wrong with starting with the Matthew 18 approach, which is trying to go to someone individually, or maybe you bring an advocate with you and you try to have an honest conversation about problems that you see and at least see where it goes. I, but I don't think that accountability can really stop there because of course the way that Matthew 18 is applied is often failing to take into account massive power differentials between the person in charge and the person trying to come forward Mm -hmm. to say the hard thing. Um, so in that case, I, you know, I absolutely support people. If you find that the system is not budging, whether you stay inside it or not using other channels of communication, whether that's going to a denominational body, you know, thinking about the Mars Hill story and just how many people, we're really wounded in that church environment and we're starting to connect with each other online and through blogs and soundboards. And there were a lot of really weird things that happened <laughs> on, yeah. you know, on those message boards. And, but I look back at those conversations that were happening like late two thousands, early 2010s. And they were right. You know, like the things that people were talking about, were truly happening and were truly damaging to so many people. Mm-hmm. And I'm sad that when I worked at CT, like at that time, we kind of dismissed it as like, oh, these are just angry people on their blogs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, th- these are just angry people taking to Twitter or taking to social media to voice their complaints when it actually, I think people were trying to use the means of communication at their disposal to try to raise alarm bells and connect with each other and advocate for one another. So I am, I am generally, I have a positive inclination toward forums like that, even though as a journalist, I always think, well, some of the things need to be vetted, you know, Mm -hmm. you're not going to quote directly from a blog you need to, but so I, but I support that kind of communication and advocacy. When do you know, when it's time to leave a system or when to stay. I mean, my, my instinct is to spiritualize this (laughs) and to say like, Oh God will tell you when to leave and when to stay. Um, I think about people who have tried to stay within unhealthy systems and feel that their spirits are crushed 
yeah. within that place. And I think I, I generally don't think that God wants that. <laughs> um, and so I, I find if there, there is a real spiritual toll that's being taken as you try to stay and reform from within, if you're seeing a consistent pattern of deception of powering up of image management, um, and your, your soul is not able to connect with God or receive from God in that space. I absolutely think you can leave. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm always curious about that. Cause like, like I said, there's people who, um, I think it was actually Jordan Peterson, um, <laughs> whole, whole, whole other conversation, but Jordan Peterson had done a video, um, and it was a, it was a panel and he was talking about Christian, you know, men in the church. And he just said, if you're so smart to see the problem, why don't you fix it? And I just mm-hmm. thought, this tells me that, you know, so little about mm-hmm. so many of these environments because the ability to actually create change does not exist in many of these organizations, in many of these mm-hmm. places. And, you know, I I've seen what you described people crushed, you know, people that, literally feel like they have no voice. I mean, that was me for my last two years of high school within, um, you know, within the school and the church, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. you're trying to say this really bad, obviously bad thing is happening, but nobody will hear it. Nobody will, nobody will listen to it. Um, you know, when you navigate away from these environments too, I think the other pieces, um, it's easy to feel really guilty um, mm. it's almost like it's, it's almost in a weird way, like survivor's guilt, you know, when there's a, a huge, mm. uh, a huge plane crash and, you know, you hear about the person, the one person that survived, you know, and they feel like this immense guilt. I feel that at times too, cause I see people who I invited to church still attending these places, or I see, um, mm. the people that mm. I know who I feel like, you know, just didn't hear me. Um, do you feel like people should feel this responsibility or, or this, um, mm. This, I guess, I don't want to say feel guilt, but feel this like responsibility to keep speaking out about it because, you know, it's affecting other people. Like, because I think sometimes it's easy to just say like, well, it didn't work for me. I'm out, you know, versus, you know, going on and sounding the alarm in some continued way. Yeah. So I don't necessarily think that a continual posture or inward sense of guilt is particularly fruitful. Because on one hand, you just have to recognize that so much of what has happened is beyond your control. Mm -hmm. Maybe you, you tried for a long time to change things and there was no receptivity to change and just recognizing your own limitations. I do think that I, I distinguish between maybe, you know, taking on a posture of guilt and doing some examination of complicity, mm-hmm. like owning Maybe, responsibility I, a little bit. Yeah. Because I, I, I think it's good to kind of be asking those questions after you get out of a toxic culture or religious system, looking back, were there ways that because I was wearing rose colored glasses, because I really believed in the mission, because I, you know, I loved the people in this community that I excused or enabled really harmful behavior Mm -hmm. or teaching. Um, Maybe it didn't come directly from me, but how much is kind of silence, a form of complicity. 
and then, you know, if there, if there are people who came to that community expressly because of you, I would say that's probably worth a follow-up conversation. (laughs) Now they may be so inside the system that they don't know what you're talking about. And they feel like, Oh, you've given yourself over to Satan or something, or, you know, you're, you're on the bad side now because Mm -hmm. one mark of these toxic church cultures is often a very black and white you're in or you're out, you're good or you're bad. No legitimate Um, reason to leave kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is scary. Um, I mean, these, this is where the, comparisons to cults and Mm -hmm. cult thinking and mindsets start to feel pertinent. Like when you feel like you literally can't leave or you're going to spend eternity in hell or something really bad is going to happen to you or God will be mad at you. I mean, yeah, all of that is, is very bad and scary. Um, I, yeah, I mean, if you can think of people who you invited into that system, whether they're still in it or out, I would think it's probably worth a conversation not to say like, I'm wrecked by guilt. What do I do? And self-flagellate, but Hey, I know that I invited you to this church six years ago. I don't know where you are currently, but you know, in that time I've seen things emerge that are really concerning. This is why I left. And I, if you were hurt in that environment, I don't know where you are in this, but I'm sorry for, you know, kind of even, naively leading you or inviting you into a place that I ended up seeing was actually really unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really valuable. Um, I I know we're getting near the end here. Um, Obviously uh, you've written a book on this subject, so there's probably a lot of messages that you want people to grab. Um, But I I do like to give something uh, really practical for people uh, usually toward the end of these episodes. And I I think, the thing that keeps circling in my mind is, uh, you know, again, we keep, we keep mentioning this idea of being too late. Like it's too late. We saw this too late. It's too little, too late. We don't know mm. what to do till it's too late. Um, for somebody who's listening and maybe you can address, you know, individuals and maybe even, you know, leaders within the church, uh, if they were to audit their ministry right now, uh, what would be some of the things you'd encourage them to look for or ask them to look for within their organization to, to just start this conversation. Cause again, I mean, some of this stuff takes time. It takes time to figure this Mm -hmm. out. takes a lot of conversation, a lot of tough conversations, but if someone were to walk away today and say, we need to start looking at this, what would you encourage them to do? Mm. Well, we already talked about the importance of accountability. Um. And again, not just saying, oh yeah, we have an elder board or a board of directors, but actually looking at the people on the elder board, (laughs) like, is this my son? My son is on the board. (laughs) We got it. We're good. Yeah. Dynamics of either like old boys club or nepotism. um, Male only in a lot of these environments. Yeah. So I, I even think this is going to be, oh, you asked for practical and this is not a practical answer. I think we need to get wise about what power is and how it, how it's used and how it corrupts. And one of the things I say in this book is that I think evangelicals have a pretty, they try at least to have a robust theology of money and sex. Like if you think of money, sex, and power as the three age old temptations, well, we have tons of books coming out about sex and financial management. I can think on one hand, the number of books that are about 
the use and abuse of power. Mm -hmm. And on that point, I would actually recommend a book from Diane Lingberg called Redeeming Power. But getting wise about like what power is, what it's meant to be used for, and how tempting it is to misuse it once you have a taste of it in whatever sphere you have power. Um, So yeah, I would think in terms of seminary training, denominational bodies, church leadership, let's get wise about how power actually operates in our community so that those of us with power know that we're not being lured into stewarding it over other people, dominating other people, using it for our own self-gratification. Um, you asked for something really practical. <laughs> and I said, um, learn a theology of power. So you heard her get started. <laughs> no, I, I want to, no. I want to be able yeah. to offer a better answer. Um, <clears throat> I mean, resources are good too. I mean, uh, Diane Langberg's book is a is a great recommendation. Maybe like a power audit <laughs> in your church, um, how it, it's used or could be abused. Um, do we see people? Do we see leaders kind of clinging to power, or do we see our leaders seeking to serve others in the way that Jesus came to serve, not to lord his power over others? Part of that too is looking to see if there is empowerment on the lay level so that it's not this um, triangle with a ton of people at the bottom who have very little power and then like only a few people at the top who have a lot of power, but maybe because I'm a good American and I like the idea of things being democratized, but you know, a sign of steward a sign of power stewarded rightly is that other people are empowered themselves, that more people can step into a place of agency and flourishing and connection and uh, contribution in churches, in ministries, in any kind of institution. Um, So if you don't feel, if you don't feel empowered, (laughs) Um, I would say that's probably a red flag. You know, if you don't feel like you can speak the truth, if you don't feel like you um, belong because you don't fit a certain kind of ministry model, you haven't been selected to be at the top of the pyramid. Um, if you feel like you're you're actually expending a lot on behalf of the church, but there's no sense of gratitude or uh, delight in that, it's like I'm trying to keep things afloat and it's so thankless. And I feel, I feel diminished in my personhood because of how much I'm giving to the church. I would think all of those would be red flags, but ultimately trying to look for the empowerment of lay Christians, you know, at every level so that we have more of a, uh, a horizontal kind of organizational structure than a top-down hierarchical structure. Awesome. Love it. Well, the last thing I'll ask you here at the end of our time is where do you, where do you see the next couple of years going as far as kind of church mm-hmm. culture? Cause I, I think, uh, cynicism is probably at an all time high right now. Um, I think there's <laughs> not for me, uh, for, for, <laughs> for, for, for a lot of people. I mean, I think seeing the SBC situation, I think there were, mm-hmm. and some of this too, to, for what it's worth, some of this too is 
we're in an unprecedented time where we know what's happening across the country. So I think it it can feel mm. that things mm-hmm. are worse because we know more. Like, it, you right. know, I, I wouldn't know what's happening in Virginia, you know, a <laughs> hundred years mm-hmm. ago, unless someone got on a, a horse and rode over and told us, <laughs> you know, so we are in a, right. we are in an information overload moment, but also mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people that are just seeing power mishandled. They're seeing huge leaders fall. You're mm-hmm. seeing advocate groups rise up. You're seeing different fractions and, you know, it, it it looks as if things are more disjointed than ever. Like, do you see this as a temporary upset that will turn into something very positive over the next couple of years? Do you think we're going to see kind of a, a shrinking and a lot of the, the kind of exterior hyper Americanized Christianity kind of fall off in the next couple of years? Like, where, mm-hmm. What do you see coming and are you hopeful? Or are you uh, semi-pessimistic about some of what's coming mm-hmm. on the horizon? I'm going to say two things that sound contradictory. One is that I think we will continue to hear bad stories. You know, I, I think we will continue to, for better or worse, read national headlines that expose specific church cultures or leaders to be unhealthy, to have abused their power, to be unfit for ministry leadership, that will continue to hurt the credibility of the church in the public square. And I also feel hopeful for the future in that I think there are, I believe that there are enough ordinary Christians who want to see the church become healthier and um, more beautiful in a place where people can actually flourish and will internalize and metabolize those headlines and start to take some of these lessons to heart and say, we don't want to become that, not just because it would be a PR scandal or <laughs> we'd lose members or numbers or whatever, but we want to create church cultures that actually reflect the love and goodness of God. And so even though this time of exposure or kind of reckoning is very painful, we have a lot of lessons to learn in this time. And what is left when things are stripped away will hopefully be something that is truer and more real and a place where, um, yeah, people can be loved and known and flourish in the ways that God intended the church to be. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing so much and for writing uh, your book. If you haven't picked up a copy, Celebrities for Jesus, be sure to grab a copy. Um, you can hit the link in the show notes and uh, purchase a copy there. Uh, and uh, it's definitely worth checking out, definitely worth reading. And uh, I think people know that just from what you shared today. Uh, so thanks again for, for joining me. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, Please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.